0: Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. Today I'm in the Coita and Donald Barker Gallery at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art at the University of Oregon. The University of Oregon is located on Kalapuya Ilhi, the traditional indigenous homelands of the Kalapuya people. Following treaties between 1851 and 1855, Kalapuya people were dispossessed of their indigenous homelands by the United States government and forcibly removed to the Coast Reservation in Western Oregon. Today, Kalapuya descendants are primarily citizens of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde and the Confederated Tribes of Siletz Indians. And they continue to make important contributions to their communities, to the U of O, to this place we now call Oregon, and the world. My guest today is Kaila Farrell-Smith, a klamath Modoc visual artist, writer, and activist. Utilizing painting and traditional indigenous art practices, her work explores space, in between indigenous and western paradigms. She displays work in the form of paintings, objects, and self-curated installations. Farrell Smith was a 2021 Haley Ford Fellow and a 2019-20 Fields Artist Fellow. Her work has been exhibited out of sight in Seattle, the Museum of Northwest Art, the Tacoma Art Museum, the Missoula Art Museum, and the Medici Fortress in Cortona, Italy. In Oregon, she has worked in the permanent collections of the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art and the Portland Art Museum. Farrell Smith is a featured artist at the Scale House Creative in Bend, and her work was on view in 2021-22 in the Portland Art Museum's group exhibition, Mesh. In 2022, she had a solo exhibition in situ at the Favel Museum in Klamath Falls. She has been selected to attend artist residencies at at Caldera Art Center, Jurassi, U-Cross, Institute of American Indian Arts, and The Crow's Shadow. She is also a certified wilderness first responder and a land defender on the front lines fighting resource extraction projects across the Pacific Northwest. Farrell Smith's painting, which we're sitting in front of, Enrollment, is included in the exhibition, Many Wests, Artists Shape an American Idea, on view at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art through December 18th, 2022. Featuring artwork from the permanent collections of the Smithsonian American Art Museum and four partner museums in the Western region of the US, Many West is the culmination of a multi-year joint curatorial initiative made possible by the Arts Bridges Foundation. Along with the JSMA, the S- Smithsonian American Art Museum's collaborating partners include the Boise Art Museum, the Utah Museum of Fine Arts in Salt Lake City, and the Watcom Museum in Bellingham, Washington. Thanks, Kayla, for coming on the show. It's great to have you with us.
1: Thank you, it's great to be here. <laughs>
0: so first, tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Um, I'm a, I guess, lifelong Oregonian. Um, I grew up here in Eugene, so this is, it's actually really nice to, um, to have this painting here at home and um, be able to um, show, show this work and be in this context um, at, the, at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum uh, of Art. I was born in Ashland, Oregon. Um, I'm a member of the klamath Modoc Paiute Tribe uh, in Southern Oregon. And I, um, yeah, I've left, I lived in Portland for about 18 years and uh, I've now relocated and live in my ancestral homelands in Modoc Point for the last four years where my uh, studio practice is based.
0: So how did you come to be a visual artist? Tell us about that journey.
1: Um, I think it's always what I was, it's always what I wanted to do. It's always, um, both of my parents um, studied art and, but ended up kind of moving into social work careers and I was very encouraged by my family and by my community to you know, kind of follow my dreams. And so when I lived in Germany, V-spot in Germany, that's when I met um, my first art teacher, Paul Plattis, and he really encouraged me to um, you know, build a portfolio and apply for art schools, and that's what I did.
0: So you've been trained in Eurocentric art techniques mm-hmm. for most of your education or your institutional education. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've also, it's cl- clear from this painting, mm-hmm. integrated indigenous art practices into your work. So ha- tell us about how you negotiate that
1: mm-hmm. you know, yeah. paradox. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think that's kind of a deeper question, uh, kind of, in, you know, with, that's like a deeper question within um, my journey, my art journey, definitely, uh, but also kind of a personal and spiritual journey of, um, I've kind, of gotten, I've kind of gotten to that we're all contradictions. <laughs> like everything is a, um, you know, you're kind of weighing that. Like, and I learned that even like when I studied in Greece. I studied archaeology. And I was talking a lot about this recently with the Favel Museum in situ. Um, But that, you know, to excavate is to destroy, but, you know, what's the balance of of that? So I've learned a lot through Western art history and studying, living and studying in Europe, um, but I'm also half European on my mother's side, so when I say paradox, that's also like, I I need it to be a fluid life journey and not like two things, but they are things that are, um, what's the words, yeah, I think I, I think I work with contradictions a lot actually within my work. Um, I do kind of use this trickster energy. So I was trained in Western um, art art history and Western art techniques, um, primarily through painting, drawing, um, and studying at museums. You know, like at going to PNCA at the age of 18, I had a full ride scholarship. At that time, PNCA Pacific Northwest College of Art is um, completely you know linked to the Portland Art Museum, so I was able to study and and. Um, study and work in that place you know that so, so and I, and in high school I lived in Germany in um, V spot in Germany so I mean, my family we traveled to lots of museums so I've, I've kind of had this um, you know like studying the canon of Western art history is something that I explore a lot especially when I work with museums mm-hmm. and their collections and kind of in this decolonizing museums realm that we're all now in and I'm glad people are talking about <laughs> uh, which is great but for me personally it was kind of after undergrad, after starting to travel, doing a lot of environmental activism work, um, and really kind of hitting dead ends or burning out on those realms, that I ended up going back to graduate school um, and deciding to get the master's in fine art, which I completed at uh, Portland State University. And that at that time is when I um, met Cornell Puberti, who is a Comanche professor. Uh, he was the kind of the head, I guess, I don't know, of the Indigenous Nation Studies at Portland State. And that was a really important time for me, um, and why I went back to school. And so I couldn't, I, or I didn't have accessib- access, access to bringing my Indigenous upbringing, and really a spiritual upbringing to, like growing up with my father, Alfred Leo Smith of the... Um, Smith versus Oregon case you know I grew up going to Sundance's sweat lodges so a lot of that is within my artwork I just didn't know how to find symbols for it right Um, because entering into the contemporary Native American art world is a whole other (laughs) a whole other place that you have to navigate so I was kind of watching all of it and actually a lot of the artists in this exhibition um, were mentors for me uh, you know mentors for me and I have followed their practices since I was young since i was 21 when i got out of undergraduate school so i've borrowed you know it's finding your own marks i guess has Mm -hmm. been a journey and so working with traditional practices like uh, uh, basket weaving um, i studied with pat courtney gold a master basket weaver those designs you know came into my work um, right after graduate school studying baskets and museums museum collections Um, and then also doing carving with Sherrod Yonker was um, a mentorship that was important. And just my work in general with Sherrod has has been key because he ran a camp called Journeys in Creativity um, through the late Oregon College of Arts and Crafts. And I was a mentor for that, for the students, but I had never studied basket weaving, carving or those traditional art forms up until that point. So I was sort of in a teacher mentor role, but I was like the ones also I wanted to be the student (laughs) and that really kind of frames actually when I did teach you know the um, um, like a pedagogical um, what do you call it it's been a while since I taught but sort of kind of putting the theory into like my practice of uh, intergenerational teaching so being the mentor and the student, and like, how do you learn from one another was something I've integrated into my work as well.
0: That's really interesting. So mm-hmm. you, you mentioned the show, The Many West Show. Mm-hmm. So this exhibition presents the perspectives of 48 modern and contemporary artists who offer a broader and more inclusive view of the West of the US, mm-hmm. which as you know, has too often been dominated by romanticized myths and Euro-American historical accounts. So let's talk about this painting, your painting Enrollment. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know say tell us anything you want to tell us about it what you know the medium the motivation
1: Sure so um, this piece enrollment it was created in 2014 so I had just finished I was like this was a part of my thesis work for my master's degree um, uh, master's in fine art degree so at that time I mean graduate school is kind of like a torture program or something like a psychological like you have to, like get thrown go through this emotional like <laughs> processes I would say that's what this painting is and a lot of my paintings were at that time Um, pushing through it's like with painting though you have to have through the struggles when you get to the good work and so a lot of these paintings I was making at that time were big um, and I was kind of not working on a lot of pieces which is I work in a very different way now so I learned this is like a a, you know a stepping stone (laughs) into the direction of learning uh, of, of like you know a serious painting practice Um, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happened before this painting (laughs) was made and sometimes I I learned from that right like bright colors neon just like some really it's hard. you know I'm a colorist too so kind of pushing through really difficult colors or work like working with chartreuse and um, so anyways at one point I just cover I just painted over the whole thing in white And so um, I started to understand my relationship to the white paint as kind of um, a form of erasure, um, which is something conceptually I use a lot in my work, especially talking about contemporary indigenous art, our experiences, what happened to us here in the state of Oregon, termination, relocation, boarding schools, the whole historical trauma. And so I was looking into a lot of that when I was in my research and doing that work with Cornell Pewarty um, in the Indigenous Nations Studies at Portland State. So I was working through a lot of like academic conceptual stuff that I was doing. And so once this figure came out, and I'm trained um, in portraiture and landscape, and at this point I had been suppressing the horizon line and the figure, but it always kind of comes back, I think, into my work, especially when I was getting into kind of the symbology. And so the figure emerged, and I think it's in response to the painting I'd done previously, which was called After Boarding School in Mourning," which is in the permanent collection of the Portland Art Museum, and that's depicting a young child, a young girl with her hair chopped off, which is what happened when the students were put into the boarding schools which was a forced assimilation process into um, white culture um, and so you know these legacies of colonization all of this is swarming in my head so basically what happened though is I put on the Hudson Bay blanket over the f- wrapped into the figure so this is a reference to biological warfare and the smallpox that disease that was put into the blankets and delivered to indigenous communities. So it's, it's a dark history, but a lot of what it was, and I'm looking directly at Marie Watt's piece across the room right now, also referencing Hudson Bay uh, blanket designs. And I actually really love these pieces in conversation with one another. Um, but you know, it's, it's a at the, this point in time as well, um, these blankets were being were, were really trendy, especially in Canada. So you're seeing it in like, you know, fashion magazines. You're seeing it in lifestyle magazines like these blankets just thrown over, you know, in a nice futon couch, you know, whatever dreamy cabin stuff. Um, and that was really triggering to me at that point in time. So I respond to those kinds of things that are bothering me. And so that's kind of where this came from. I see it. So this has here. The hair's grown out a lot longer. Um, I see it as like a song or a whisper or just, I don't know, a prayer. It could be anything. So there's kind of this balance between violence. Um, I see this as it could be water. You know, there's a lot of torrential things happening, but so I kind of I use that white paint as being erasure and the sublime. Mm. So it's also a visual resting place. Mm. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Very helpful. Really interesting. So you, you mentioned that you're looking at um, Marie Wad and a piece by Marie Watt, and there's pieces by Rick, Rick Barto and V. Maldonado here. Mm-hmm. So, obviously, a good number of Indigenous artists are on a display in the show. How do you understand the significance of this show? Why is this an important show?
1: Hmm. That's a really good question, and I, I was really excited when um, you know the curators and. Reached out and let me let me know that this piece was selected um, to be traveling in this um, multi-institutional, multi-year exhibition, and um, yeah, this is this was the first time I got to see in person. So um, I, you know, it's it's traveled already to I think a couple other museums, and we'll be continuing on to um, to other museums eventually, ending up at the Smithsonian. And so you know, the concept of the West is something that I, I, I mean, all of us, all contemporary Indigenous artists have to kind of confront that, especially when you're working in, in museums, in these institutions that have extremely problematic histories, are on stolen indigenous land. Um, I did, I've done a lot of this work with the Portland Art Museum, um, and now with the Fable Museum, also at the High Desert Museum and um, I know Elizabeth Woody, who's the director of the Warm Springs Museum, and so I'm very interested in these cultural, building indigenous-led cultural institutions, and how do we, instead of fighting back constantly within the Western narrative, or Eurocentric Western narrative, you know, kind of starting to build our own spaces. Because it's heavy work, you know, when you're in these collections, and you're in the vaults, and this is the first time, personally, that I'm engaging with you know these cer- these types of ceremonial objects. In some cases, objects that that need to be you know through the Nagpra um, um, that need to be given back. You know, so there's and that's heavy. that's like a deep that that's heavy work. Um, so the context of this exhibition is extremely important to start um, bringing in. I mean, I love the diversity of artists in this exhibition. I find it extremely important you know to be diving into these narratives i mean what we're, what we're doing is we're fighting and dismantling and confronting historical narratives um, and so i've learned a lot from james lavador rick Barto, um, marie watts practice v maldonado's um, painting practice and you know it's like having contemporaries is really important you learn from one another you see how they are uphold you know, being up, upheld in the formalism Um, So, you know, what's a good painting? You know, that's all all I ever really cared about. And so, you know, I went to Santa Fe eventually and did do the residency there at IAIA, but that's a whole other market. So it's sort of like, how do we start, you know, building um, educational formats to use art and creative expression to start helping students or viewers um, confront these really, really horrific (laughs) and traumatizing, war and i think we were going to talk about that i consider myself a wartime artist um you know that's and like I, I mentioned that you know so there's been so much of the settler colonial project's design is to erase indigenous culture and so that's where that paradox come in and that's what i deal with in a formal sense and um and so yeah th- this painting is kind of is upheld within that and um yeah, yeah, um, let's go, let's, let's go. move okay. on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you,
0: you just mentioned that you consider yourself a wartime artist, so why? Tell us why.
1: I think, yeah, that's, it's an important question that I have. It is a self, you know, it's a, it's a title I've, I've put on myself. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry. Um, so I, I mentioned that I lived in Germany when I was in high school. Um, I got to study uh, European history um, through painting, primarily. I always wanted to be a painter. Um, And I was—I've been very influenced by post World World both World War One and World War Two German Expressionist artists is very much a huge inspiration from Gerhard Richter. I mean, even Joseph Boys. There's a lot of post World War Two artists that have been um, extremely—I've been very inspired by—and I know artists like Rick Bartow has also been uh, very inspired by by that work. And I think you know when. I've studied history through the lens of, you know, the Western canon of European history. So I studied Greek archaeology archaeology in Greece. I've studied in Tuscany in Italy for almost a year, lived in Germany for four years, and then have gone back and traveled. And um, so, but I do believe that the Indian Wars are still going on. We're living through it. And, And I didn't, you know, conceptually when you're in school, you know, kind of thinking about world history, global history. The um, how modernism, through Western art history, through modernism, is completely linked to settler colonialism and objects that are being taken from Africa or islands or, you know, what is now called the Americas, you know, then these objects are influencing at the same time that photography is being created and you know abstraction is you know happening in the in the late 1800s um, in Europe. You know the African mass of Picasso that are inspiring. You know, but then when you look at museums, how you know they display things. That's you know. So all of this is like who tells the story, <laughs> right, at the end of the time, at the end of the day. So, um, but I think really where I started to talk, you know, understand my my work in that context was making the Land Back series, um, my latest um, painting series um, from 2019 to 2021. And that was follow, I was also writing a chapter for, for an academic book um, called Ghost Rider, Performing Fugitive Indigeneity. So my work since I've left Portland, um, Has been about refusal and the act, the um, deliberate act of, of refusing to sometimes participate in institutional, I don't know, events or different things, you know, because I know what it's like to be used, (laughs) I guess, or you know, tokenized, and I've never liked that, like, because I want it to be a good painter, an artist where you can constantly evolve the work and it can change, Um, and. Coming up to the wartime artist is that um, I've been on the front lines since tw- personally since 20. 20- I mean I've worked in the environmental movement for 20 years, but it was really going to Standing Rock in 2016 that that was the ba- that was a battle. It was a corporations against all the people fighting to protect water. And you know you're there and people got their eyes shut out and their arms blown up by um, corporate you know cops <laughs> protecting the DAPL pipeline, Dakota Access Pipeline. So that really fueled um, my, yeah, it it changed my life, let's just say that. And so once I came home here to Oregon, we fought the Jordan, I've spent the last six years fighting the Jordan Cove LNG pipeline. And um, I'm currently suing the state, I'm one of of plaintiffs suing the state of Oregon Department of Justice over being surveilled for being a Jordan Cove tribal activist. And, um, but we successfully won and stopped that pipeline fight. So. it's real. <clears throat> I've spent many years, you know, being wary of you know technology and surveillance because of that surveillance. So and that and so all of that stuff does come out in my artwork <laughs> in the studio. So the you know there there's some dark there's some darkness that I've had to work through basically, in that um, so that's why I consider these these paintings um, to be a reflection of the current war that we are living through, literally. Yeah.
0: So you are also a poet and a writer, you've mentioned your writing. So mm-hmm. say a little bit about your understanding of the relationship between your writing and your visual art and your political activism.
1: Mm. Thank you for asking that question. A lot. Um, I feel like the writing part is gets missed and, and, and its correlation between what I'm able to express through visual formats and what I'm able to express through my research thinking, because they're completely related. <clears throat> So you know, going through school becoming um, doing professor work, creating curriculum i've done i do a lot of reading i haven 't as much actually i 've been more doing the writing and painting lately, which is good. I need to balance out <laughs> what i you know uh, yeah there 's you have to live your life too you can 't just you know just have your head in books all the time but that was definitely a a tool that I used through the last few years with lockdowns and the pandemic stuff Um, so I was working on the paintings land back I was writing this chapter Ghost Rider um, which does link to and does research regarding the ghost dance Um, so which is historically um, the ghost dance was was performed or was I see it as very deep spiritual um, How do I talk about the ghost dance? It's hard for me to kind of express it and then write it and then paint about it at the same time. Um, So I'm kind of diving through my personal healing journey, moving home to Modoc Point. And um, my father passed away in 2014. I was very close with with my father. we had brought his ashes home, so he's there with his mom and aunt, sisters and grandma. And so I have, you know, I I want to take care of, you know, that work. So kind of doing that healing is what I've, I've been on my, my own healing journey. And through this practice, though, I found um, research that in the late 1800s, when the Modoc war leaders, um, led by Kint Puash, or Captain Jack, um, were they were forced back onto the Klamath Reservation, and then the MODOK war leaders, the four of them were hung, lynched in Fort Klamath. Um, and my great-grandmother, great, great, gra- my great grandmother, Emma Ball, um, was nine years old and was forced to watch. So they forced the Klamath people to go up to Fort Klamath, which was a military um, in- installation, and they lynched them. So in this, I, fa- I learned about this reading the book Indigenous People's History of the United States by Ro- Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And in that, when I was teaching this book, you know, I ended up like, was like, wow, this is actually a really big deal. So, in 2003, Dick Cheney and George W. Bush's lawyer John C. U. cites the hanging, the lynching of the Modoc war leaders as legal precedent to open up the torture program in Guantanamo Bay and Abu Ghraib in Iraq. So that, and which is this torture program, has still been going on. And so I have a piece in that that series called Torture State, which is kind of depicting a hooded figure, and that is my visual representation of all this research that I did, but I, re- I really want people to know about that because i that doesn't seem right, <laughs> you know, of like where is the origin of the word terrorist, and, uh, and what is its relationship to the United States, their view of their sovereignty in relation to Stealing all our land, committing genocide, you know, what, what were the Indian Wars about in the late, late 1800s? So I find that really problematic and needs to be addressed. And so that at the core, but basically writing all of that, fighting the pipeline, uh, I couldn't finish those paintings until I finished that chapter, let's just say that. And I, it, they were like related to one another. So... Um, and it was really linked to uh, the, the idea of the iron horse and the trains, and like what you know, the, my father used to hop the, the trains when he escaped from boarding schools in, in Eugene, in Portland, to get back home to his mom and grandma in Modoc Point. So, I, you know, in my head, I'm like going through all of this over the past four years, and um, so, anyways, yeah, that, that's the work. Um, and then in the kind of heart of the winter. I finally saw my mom, she came down. I don't know, it had been really hard through the COVID stuff. And I get an email from a friend, a friend that we had met in school, like in 2011, um, Taka, uh, Takahiro Yamamoto, who's a performance artist. And Taka reaches out to me and, because performance artists couldn't do anything either. <laughs> like all the museums, like everything's, um, it was, it was rough, and so he a lot of us turned into book forms, right? Into book forms to, to start translating our work. And so he invited me for his piece um, that was also just performed at the Portland Art Museum. His performance piece, Opacity, oh, I'm don't quote me on that. It, but anyways, it just went up. Uh, or just, it was up recently this year, I think, And the exhibition Mesh. So we were able to have work at the Portland Art Museum at the same time. But he invited me to be a contributor to this book format of the... Um, of, of his performance piece. And so I wrote a poem called Medicine Burn, and that was really healing. It was like to be able to go through that poetry process. And uh, and it had been a long time since I wrote a poem. And so that felt really great to kind of have that contribution go into the work with Taka. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm. So we only have a couple of minutes left, so this will probably be my last question. Okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So um, what are you working on now? And when is your next exhibit?
1: Great question. <laughs> um, so i find, i feel like i I've, I've been taking a break to be honest um sometime and i think that's healthy self care i've do, i've done a lot of kayaking this summer um I do need to do my recertification um for the wilderness first responders that i do really enjoy i- enjoy, not enjoy it's a it's a stressful thing to have <laughs> but it does come in handy'cause even when you're in cities, it can be the wilderness. <laughs> um, so yeah, kind of working through that work. Um, we have 18 acres. We built a huge greenhouse. I've been harvesting food, Just learning to grow my own food. And I, when I say we, I'm talking about my partner, Kale Christie, and um, he's really a vital part of Modoc Point Studio, and keep, it's, it's keeping it all going. So a lot of it has been you know, using the fellowship um, support from Hallie Ford and the Fields Artist uh, Fellowship. Um, it's been about building a stu- building my studio, so that's actually really my focus right now. Um, so we have, have a barn that we're going to transform into more of the mechanic shop, which is Kale's work, and then um, I'll get the whole um, studio wh- where I, come t- I work now. But we, you know, I want to build. I need to bring water, plumbing. I want to build a little apartment in there, so that kind of stuff is definitely what I'm doing. But I will let you know. Yeah, I did start my um, my next work, my next series. Uh, I just returned from Missoula, Montana, and I did a residency with Matrix Press, and I made 120 prints in 50, five days, excuse me, mm. <laughs> so it was a whirlwind, like, a uh, couple weeks ago, and, um, yeah, so my, my work, this series, I want to work in a grayscale, so I'm challenging myself to black and white paintings, or what they will, they'll end up being a grayscale work, so, um, uh, so I started doing that kind of playing with that, with the mono print series that's in um, that I did in Montana. But the whole the whole work, in conceptually, I'm calling it "Ghosts in the Machine." Um, so it's my response to a recent U.S. military recruiting video, um, which is terrifying. But again, it's this ghosts and the Joker character, and <laughs> um, what does that mean, "Ghosts in the Machine"? And I think what it is is CIA or DARPA. Um, using propaganda through, through I don't know what. <laughs> what we see on, on, on screens you know, can be very manipulated these days. Mm-hmm. And so I want to go back to just drawing and painting and printmaking. And you know it'll, it's a very large concept, but I think uh, I will be able to create a lot of work <clears throat> Great. responding well, to it. <laughs>
0: thank you so much, Ka'ila, for taking the time to speak with us today mm-hmm. and um, to talk about your work in this show. It's been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. Mm-hmm.
0: I've been speaking with Kayla Farrell Smith, a Klamath Modoc visual artist, writer, and activist. Her painting Enrollment is featured in the exhibit Many Wests: Artists Shape an American Idea on view at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art through December 18th, 2022. Thanks so much for watching.